Uh, I want to say hello to everyone out there. Uh, again, my name is David. And uh, if uh, you are part of Church of the Cross, uh, a warm greeting to you. If you are not part of uh, the Church of the Cross community, a warm greeting to you as well. And if you are a young person who has no interest in coloring, although we should never tire of, of coloring at any point in our life, I want to say hello to you. And, and I'm so glad that you're here uh, with, with us, with me. And I hope that what I share uh, will encourage you as well. I will also say, just as one more prefatory, I'm, I'm, I'm buying some time for parents here, um, is that these unusual circumstances for us these days around the world in terms of how we worship, remind me that for the first 300 years, that's, that's three centuries, Christians worshiped in less than ideal uh, circumstances. They, they worshiped in their homes, perhaps. They worshiped in fields. They worshiped in these things called catacombs, which are these underground caverns. And so for 300 years, Christians figured out ways to continue to worship and pray with one another. And so in a sense, this is perhaps an opportunity for us to feel this sense of sympathy and kindredness with brothers and sisters throughout the ages, and also to trust that God's grace is sufficient for us under these unusual circumstances as well. Okay, those are my, my, my off-the-cuff prefatory remarks. Um, and uh, just to start off, uh, what I wanted to mention is that when I, when I first received uh, Peter's message in my inbox asking if I would preach on Psalm 23, my, my immediate response, which was more instinctual um, <clears throat> than anything, was just a little bit of dread. Because it was like being asked to give a talk on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. What possibly could I say that was fresh for anybody about a psalm that has perhaps been prayed and sung and read more than any other psalm in church history? I also realize that at some level, I am fighting perhaps uh, against a psalm that has appeared in Sunday school classrooms all across America, if not elsewhere, in the form of Warner Solomon's painting of the Good Shepherd, and this is in the mid-20th century, and here it is. Will, is this close enough for them to see? Can they see it? Is, it? is it in the frame? Oh, there you go. You put it in front. Okay, so here you have this vision of little plump sheep and utopian pastures devoid of any hint of death valley or sinister enemies and hovering over this idyllic landscape is this well-groomed Caucasian Jesus emanating this unflappable emollient aura. It's that has, that has dominated our imagination when we think about Psalm 23 and this idea of the Good Shepherd. So what exactly do you say to a people for whom Psalm 23 may simply be a bunch of white noise? Well, you say the one thing that you discovered, that you saw for the first time in your entire almost 48 years of life. You'd never seen this before. And the Holy Spirit just went ding, and eyes were opened, and I saw something after staring at the text for days and weeks, hopefully mostly prayerfully rather than frustratingly. <laughs> you saw that verse 1 is, in fact, the gospel, the gospel according to the Psalter. M might I even say the gospel according to the entire Old Testament? 
that in this first verse, you have identified for us both our fundamental need and our fundamental fear. That's the one thing I would love to share with you today. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, before I explore that first verse in some small measure of depth, let me also offer just three very brief comments about the larger context because I think it will help us understand what's actually happening in Psalm 23. So the first thing to note is that there is actually a dialogue taking place between Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. So in Psalm 23, for example, we have represented to us this psalmist who is utterly needy and who in fact experiences being utterly forsaken by God. It's as low as you can get in your human experience. In Psalm 24, on the other hand, we have this image of God as this divine warrior king who owns everything, who wants for nothing, and who generously, copiously provides for all of creation. And in between these two psalms, we have this psalmist who finds himself at a kind of middle point. On the one hand, he's able to state in fact, perhaps in faith, that he does not want for anything. And yet, surrounding him on every side is this hovering, menacing presence of evil, death, and enemies. As if to say to the reader, we have not forgotten where we have come from in Psalm 22, nor yet have we forgotten where we are headed in Psalm 24. A second thing to point out is this. While we may be tempted to read Psalm 23 as this story of the self-contained individual serenely moving through life, I suggest to you that the editors of the Psalter will not let us read Psalm 23 as merely or absolutely the story of the individual, which is why Psalm 22 and Psalm 24 are bearing witness to this Psalm in the middle to tell us precisely that we cannot walk in this way, this way of travail, this way of everlasting life, apart from community. In Psalm 22, the community bears witness to the suffering of the psalmist. And in Psalm 24, all of creation bears witness to the psalmist's experience of plenty. A final thing to note is this. There are three movements in Psalm 23 that correspond to three metaphors. In verses 1 to 3, we have the metaphor of the Lord as shepherd, the psalmist of sheep. In verses 4 and 5, we have the image of the Lord as host and the psalmist as guest. And in the final verse, the psalmist is at home in the house of the Lord. Why does that matter? Because I think what's happening here is that the psalm is representing us for us, this journey, much like John Bunyan or Dante much later represent for us this journey through life with this final arrival at home. And it's in this sense that I'd like to suggest to you that Psalm 23 is in fact the story of Adam and Eve. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of the other church. I might even argue that it's the story of Jesus himself, but it is certainly your story and my story as well. Okay, so three contextual things about Psalm 23, verse 1. Hold those in your mind. We'll come back to them a little bit later. Okay, Psalm 23, verse 1. The first word that appears in this verse is the Lord. 
Why is that important? Well, in the Hebrew, this is the four uh, consonant sacred name of God that he reveals to Moses. In ancient years in society, everyone had a sense of the generic name of God, which was Elohim. God chooses to reveal a personal name to Moses. It's what might be called his forever name, his I will be with you always name. It's his I will always tie my character, my identity to what I do in the world. It'd be like the difference between saying I'm a man and saying I'm the son of Bill and Yvonne Taylor. I am the husband of Phaedra. I am the father of Blythe and Sebastian. All those identity markers tell you something uniquely about who I am. Now, the term Lord is then qualified by shepherd. Why is that significant? Well, for starters, unlike a king who can be relatively effective at his job at a distance, a shepherd, in fact, cannot be effectual if he is far away. He must be a nearby shepherd. That is, a faraway shepherd is fundamentally a contradiction in term. Terms. And this is a way for the Lord to identify the manner in which he cares for us. He cares for us as a shepherd who is near at hand, quite literally at hand's length. His care for you is literally at hand's length. A second thing to note is that in ancient Near Eastern societies, again, the language of shepherd usually appeared in the plural. God is our shepherd. But here, it appears atypically in the singular. It's intended to arrest the attention of the reader in this communalist society who may be tempted to believe that he or she is only who they are in relationship to this collectivist identity. But here, the psalmist is saying, no, the Lord is your shepherd, my shepherd. There are no generic people in God's family. There is only Will, there is Peter, and Nick, and Krista, and Andrew, and David. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, what's really interesting about this phrase is that the Lord provides food, and rest, and guidance, and protection in precisely the places where we feel utterly helpless in the face of death, in the face of enemies, in the face of evil. To put it in contemporary terms, the Lord is our shepherd, my shepherd, we shall not want, I shall not want, in the face of a global pandemic, in the presence of this vicious anxiety that threatens to undo me, in our experience of powerlessness. Now, the psalmist signals to the reader the critical importance of this reality by shifting suddenly into a second-person address with God, from he to you. He guides me, you are with me. He leads, you comfort me. He refreshes me, you protect me. It's a little bit like a little girl that I know who came into her daddy's office many years ago while her daddy was typing very busily and seriously on his computer. And she wanted to share with him something that had made her sad that day. And as she was speaking to him, he was typing and saying things like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, 
Uh, oh, really? Uh-huh. And then suddenly she bursts out and says, Daddy, look at me. And so the daddy stops what he's doing, and he looks at her in the eye. And here's the good news. God is never like that daddy, too busy. He always attends to us with his intimate, personal eye contact. It's always you, me. I see you. I hear you. Now, the King James translates verse 5 with the phrase, my cup runneth over. The cup here is a shorthand for the whole meal that the psalmist experiences in the presence of his enemies. And it runneth over in the sense that God's provision always in some sense exceeds what we could ever ask or imagine or need in the moment. It's a little bit like when Father Christmas shows up in Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and surprises the weary, dispirited travelers at their lowest moment with gifts that exceed whatever they could have imagined needing or wanting in the moment. To Mrs. Beaver, he gives her a brand new sewing machine. To Lucy, he gives her this, this, this magic cordial in a, bo a bottle. And to all of them, he provides them with a pot of hot tea with lumps of sugar and cream, which for the Brits is like heaven, and Canadians as well. <laughs> Now, the experience of not wanting in Psalm 23 reaches this climax in, in a final benediction. After all the lying down and the guiding and the walking and the eating and the waiting and the consummation of one's life, there is an end to it all. And it's home. And it's what God has put in our hearts to hunger after. And every great story is in some sense trying to identify, to name our desire for home. Now, as with the whole of the Psalter, let me suggest to you that Psalm 23 functions as a counter narrative to the primordial story. In Genesis 3, the serpent asks Adam and Eve a question that he asks you and me. Did God really say? And the presumed answer is, no, he didn't. And like Peter denying Jesus, I don't know his name. The serpent also asked our first parents a question whose intention is to sow doubt in their minds. Will God really take care of you? Really take care of you? And the presumed answer again is no, he cannot. And in fact, does not wish to take care of me. And finally, the serpent brazenly contradicts God's own speech as if to say, Really, look around you. Is he really taking care of you? He isn't. So you know what? Grasp it. Take it. Choose it. Be the sovereign of your own life. And the presumption here is if you don't take care of yourself, in particular in those places that you feel most painfully your need, most acutely your powerlessness, you will always be in want. And I know what that feels like. Now, that's the story of the first Adam. And then there's another story, as you know, of what St. Paul calls the last Adam or the true Adam. Satan's first temptation, as you will know, of Jesus in the desert is to turn just a few stones and just a little handful of bread, just a little bit, so that Jesus would take care of himself because presumably the Father 
certainly will not. Jesus thankfully chooses to refuse this temptation, chooses to trust his father, the empirical evidence notwithstanding, and then eventually he offers his body as bread for the whole world. So dear friends, when you look at the face of the wounded and resurrected Christ, you are looking at the very heart of God. And when you see the face of this Jesus, you are seeing that I will be with you always, yea, to the ends of the ages, God. And when you look in the face of this good shepherd, you see the one who knows and hears you. It's like my son Sebastian. For a long time, when he would wake up from his nap, he would yell and shout and scream. And one day I realized maybe he's anxious because he fears that we won't come to get him. And so one day, which is actually not that long ago, maybe a couple weeks ago, after he woke up, I just told him very gently, you can just call out to me, Sebastian, and I, I promise I will hear your voice. And the very next day, I'm sitting in my office, which is right across from his room. He wakes up, and in this little whispery voice, he says, Daddy. And it just pricked my heart because I thought, well, he heard me, he trusted me, and he's doing it. And so I leapt up out of my, my seat, and I walked across, and I went in, and I looked at him in his crib, and I say, I heard you. And that is exactly how God takes care of us as a good shepherd. And yet here's the thing. We don't always feel this. We don't always believe it. We do not always think it to be true that the Lord is our shepherd. So sure, the, the psalmist in Psalm 23 goes through the life's journey, and at the end, he says, I shall not want. But, but if you're honest with yourself, you do want. You want in your marriage. Your children perhaps at times leave you wanting. Your parents perhaps denied you the care that you needed. Your budget is strained. Your body is chronically in pain. Your job exhausts you. Your country fails you. You are in want. The psalmist in Psalm 23 faces death and darkness and enemies. And to this, he is able to say, I shall not want. But you do. You feel anxious about the unpredictability of our days. A global recession may ensue. Your small business may go bankrupt. Medical professionals feel overwhelmed. Your elderly parents feel very afraid. In Psalm 23, finally, the psalmist arrives home. And in this arrival of home, he says, I have not wanted, I shall not want. And yet, and yet you do, still. Phaedra's grandfather died this past week, and she couldn't even go visit him one last time. The dear Quellos, well, their sabbatical has been sabotaged. Those of you who are single and perhaps extroverted are living at home alone and feel like this is a death sentence on your life. Or if you have kids, they have this encroaching, menacing experience of anxiety in their own little hearts. So this whole thing in, at one level is a kind of dark valley. So what do we do? What does it mean for us to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? Allow me to end here by recommending two things that you could consider doing. I don't pretend that they're magic. I don't think that they automatically do anything, but allow me to commend them to you. The first is this. You read Psalm 23 in the way that Christians for hundreds and hundreds of years have read it. Not as a statement of fact, but as a statement of faith. 
In a sense, you read it in order to help your heart stumble towards the truth. So if at some point this week and in the weeks to come, you find yourself overwhelmed powerfully by an experience of not being heard, seen by God, taken care of, let me encourage you to do something that the, that the, that the Israelites did when they prayed these psalms, and they said them out loud. Pause, even if it's just for five minutes, and say, Dear God, right now, I do not feel that you are my shepherd, so please be my shepherd. I feel in want. Please take care of my wants. 10 seconds. Just try it. There's something powerful, not magic, but powerful when we speak out loud things so that our brains and our hearts could slowly ingest the truth. And then the second thing I commend to you is to read Psalm 23 in the ways that the original psalmist would have read them in conversation with 22 and 24, and that is reckoning with the fact that we can't do it alone. So if you feel needy or alone and you don't feel that the Lord is your shepherd, reach out in a way that perhaps you've never reached out and honestly, vulnerably say, I need help. And if you have a sense that somebody needs help, reach out to them with a sense of urgency that maybe you've never had. Call them, text them, generously share something with them that could anticipate their needs, or perhaps just say out loud to them, hey, I know you don't feel this, but I just want to tell you I love you and the Lord is your shepherd. Those are two things that I would commend to you today and in the days to come as we reckon with this gospel according to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, these words that were written thousands of years ago and yet by people that are just like us and who just like us need to know that you are our shepherd, my shepherd, and that we shall not be in want. So bless my friends, uh, my older friends and my younger friends as they seek to receive this good word in their hearts and live in light of the fact that they have a good shepherd who can and does want to take care of them. In Jesus' name, amen.